It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer, David Faber, live from separate locations. Big show this morning. The CEOs of Boeing, AMD, Starbucks, Spotify, NGE. In the meantime, futures have doubled on these positive data points about uh, Gilead's remdesivir. Stock is still halted. Q1 GDP down 4.8 as the longest economic expansion comes to an end. Fed decision at 2 o'clock, Jim. The first virtual presser at 2.30, but it does seem like remdesivir is going to dominate the conversation for the next, uh, maybe the open. Right. I think that we've all been searching for two things. One, when can we have a vaccine? And the answer is not for a long time. Even the greatest optimists think that on mass vaccine middle of 2021, maybe something smaller later this fall. But the idea of something that is just giving to you in the hospital, the IV, that makes it so that it eliminates the, uh, let's say, the odds of you dying, it is something that makes us feel like that maybe this is the Tamiflu for this dreaded disease. And I think that, of course, makes people feel more optimistic because right now I think the country's kind of torn. They want it open. Everybody wants it open, but nobody wants to die. And it really has been that stark, that bipolar. Well, how about we get it open versus getting really sick? That is something that I think a lot of people are going to say, open it up. And right. that's why the market's flying. But, you know, Jim, it's not the Tamiflu. I think that's an important point. It's for when you actually are already fairly sick. It's very important. I don't want to discount it in any way. And listening to Scott Gottlieb, of course, has been one of the more rational voices on this throughout. I think he frames it properly, which is we actually do still need those antivirals that would be taken earlier in the course of the disease to mitigate its effects. Oral antivirals. We hope perhaps some will be available as soon as the fall. If you have those and you have remdesivir for people who do get sick and end up in the hospital, and you have widespread testing, you certainly could imagine a landscape in which people are going to feel much more comfortable about going about their daily lives, returning to their activities that they typically did pursue. That is really important if and when we do get a second wave. Well, it's an odds game. If this changed the odds, it's not great. I mean, look, obviously, if we took a pill... Uh, that, that the equivalent of Tamiflu. I, I don't want to be glib about Tamiflu. I'm just saying that what's basically happening here is that there's a lot more hope than we had about an hour ago. Here we go. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, futures obviously up 500 plus. Gilead has opened up 8%. Uh, we're going to watch that very closely along with all the earnings that uh, we've gotten this morning, including Boeing. And for that, we're going to turn first to our Phil LeBeau. Hey, Phil. Good morning, Carl. Let's bring in Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing, joining us remotely today. Dave, we've already gone over the numbers, the loss of $1.70 per share in the first quarter. Revenue's down about 26%. Give us some perspective in terms of how bad the situation is right now in the commercial airplane market and what you're hearing back from your customers in terms of future orders, possible deferrals, cancellations, et cetera. Hi, Phil. Uh, It's good to be with you. Uh, Before I jump into that question, uh, I'm going to add my thanks, like everyone else, to uh, all of the healthcare workers, industry that are supporting so many of us, uh, trying their best and putting themselves at risk to keep us in good health. Um, The market, as you know, we feel a little bit like we're the tip of the spear, aviation, in light of all of the shutdowns, not just here in the United States, but pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, The ramifications are big. Um, For the most part, uh, the industry is not interested in taking uh, delivery of airplanes at the moment and or prepaying against contracts that we have in hand. And so as a result, there is this moment in time where everyone is sort of frozen trying to contend with the dramatic reductions. In the United States, passenger traffic at this moment is is 95 percent down from where it was a year ago. That's remarkable. Uh, Schedules, flight schedules are not down as severely, but they are down significantly, uh, simply because the airlines have been allowed to continue with uh, connections and points just with much less frequency. So the world market has been stunned. It is a bit frozen, but we remain confident that it will come back. Uh, we, we, We talk to airline CEOs every day, every week, Um, Most of the governments have come forward with their support, certainly here in the United States they have. That has caught, there's been a real thaw with respect to the thinking and the planning forward with respect to markets. So I'm uh, 
believe it or not, I'm, I'm more confident right now than I've been in quite some time. Um, and I believe the thaw is beginning. Dave, you uh, guys are announcing that you're going to be cutting your payroll by 10 percent, basically 16,000 of the company's 160,000 uh, approximate employees, with the biggest impact being on the commercial airplane division. Are you confident that those job cuts, along with the slower production rates that you're introducing uh, starting now all the way over the next couple of years, will be enough? In other words, that you guys are taking the steps that will avoid having to come back and perhaps cut even further, let's say, nine months or a year down the road? Well, I'm never going to uh, uh, say that with pure authority because I'm not sure what the world's going to look like in nine months. But we have factored in everything we can think of. Uh, the recovery with respect to passenger traffic that we have modeled is roughly three to five years before we get back to the environment that existed pre-COVID. Uh, we get back to 19 levels in around three years, and then to get back on the growth track, it might take another couple of years. So we've been conservative in that respect. Our planning is mostly built around the refleeting of a variety of airlines. They, everyone is looking at their fleet plans. The retirements are going to be significant. And the investments, while not what they used to be in a growth environment, will continue to be made to get more fuel efficient, cleaner airplanes in the sky and create competitive advantages for each of our airlines. So that's what we've modeled. Uh, we have stress test the model in as many ways as we can think of. The production rates are tailored for that model. And we believe the, the markets and the credit markets and liquidity will be there for us. But I don't want to suggest that in nine months, if there's another spike, that things won't change. Hey, Dave, let's talk about liquidity. Uh, you guys have $15.5 billion in cash on hand. That's how much you had at the end of the quarter. But you've made it clear. You're going to have to borrow billions more, likely from the private market, but also potentially from the federal government. Where do things stand in your discussions with the Treasury Department? Well, we have uh, kept the Treasury Department apprised of our situation for quite some time. I think they know precisely our situation, our needs broadly. Uh, the... Uh, CARES Act, uh, the Fed program in combination, when they got announced, credit markets did loosen up a fair amount, which means that we have private options or public options available to us. Um, at this stage, just know that we're going to evaluate all of those options. Uh, we need liquidity. Our industry needs liquidity. Our supply chain needs liquidity. So we'll evaluate all those options. We'll file applications where appropriate, and we'll be in the uh, public markets. Kramer, uh, thank you for coming on. I want, to, I want to follow up on what Phil just said. Uh, to me, the optimal thing for you would just because of the way that the Federal Reserve is working, giant loans. Uh, I would like to think that you could take off the table that you wanted to go to Treasury and give them warrants or stock. Uh, people don't want that. They want to be shareholders of a company that is borrowing money, not shareholders of a company that is co-shareholder with the government. Can't you take that off the table? Jim, I, I don't want to predict uh, any outcomes here. Uh, we are we will be in the markets. Uh, we will explore all of these options. We believe we have good credit. We believe in the future of our company and the, the ultimate ability to pay down debt. So we'll be in the credit markets. We will do what we have to do to secure our liquidity. And at, we will explore all of these options. But I don't want to predict outcomes, certainly not at this time. OK, yesterday we had uh, Gary Kelly on from Southwest good client of yours. And one of the things he said was that uh, a lot of people do want to fly, but they don't know where they want to go to. And what's come down to, for a lot of people I talk to is I don't want to get sick. And if I get if I go on a plane, I will get sick. But the truth is that you can wear a mask to be able to defend yourself against the next door neighbor. But isn't it actually safer to be in a Boeing airplane than it is to be in an office building in terms of air circulation? Yeah, Jim, uh, you're making a great point. Um, and uh, oftentimes the public confuses this because it looks like a confined space. But the air on an airplane in the fuselage and in the flight deck uh, gets replaced between every two and three minutes. And the air that recirculates is filtered in that same cycle through a HEPA filter, which is the equivalent of many of the filters in ICUs. So believe it or not, that environment is an amazingly safe environment with respect to aerosol impacts. Um, and with masks, you're correct. And that prevents that, you know, that proximity question. So 
it really is a much safer environment than most of the public understands. I do see the industry beginning to uh, rally around uh, all of the protocols that will be required going forward. I don't want to go too fast because I want it to be as fact-based as it can. And I think all of the agencies that are involved in this, the FAA, the TSA, the CDC, they all similarly want the facts. They want to lay it out. And the protocols and guidelines, I think, will be reasonable and it will lead to a recovery of our industry. Mr. Calhoun, it's David Faber. I just want to see if I get a bit more clarity from you in terms of your various efforts to raise capital. You said you will go to the public markets. There is some reporting that says you'll have be offering bonds, a large, large amount of bonds in the public market soon. Is that going to be the case? And if so, when? And does it mean that you don't in any way access government aid? Yeah, David, I, uh, I, I, I hate to uh, give the same answer to a slightly different question, but <laughs> we are going to look at all of our options. The public markets are in better shape than they were several weeks ago um, post the CARES Act. Uh, post the Fed program. So we're going to look at those. We're going to look at the tools that are embedded in the CARES Act. We're going to look at the Fed program. And we're going to make decisions that are in the best interest of the Boeing company and our share owners. Um, it's, uh, I, I just don't want to get ahead of ourselves, and I can't predict the outcomes. Okay. Hey, Dave. Um, Workforce reduction, uh, 10%. There had been reports that you told some uh, union officials that that percentage could be much higher. Is 10% firm? Yeah, I don't know of any uh, uh, facts or reasons why anyone would speculate other than what we've announced this morning, which is a 10% enterprise number and a bigger percentage, obviously, in our commercial business. You know, roughly 45% of our revenue comes from the Defense Department and the government. Um, and defense programs uh, internationally. Uh, so the headcount reductions in those areas, of course, are far, far less uh, as we continue to invest in, in uh, what are otherwise growth opportunities in those markets. Dave, it's uh, Phil Lebeau again. You guys have, uh, with the 737 MAX, while you have not publicly said that the timeline is slipping and pushing a little bit further into the third quarter, uh, from everybody that we've talked to, it's pretty clear that that's happening. Uh, what seems to be the issue when it comes to these software glitches that it seems like you guys identify them, there was work being done on them, but, you know, it, it seems like a process, a, a bit of a groundhog day where these continue to pop up. Are you confident you can hit that third quarter delivery uh, or at least on grounding of the max? Yeah, Phil, uh, we are. Um, let me just start out with saying that the, the MAX program, believe it or not, despite these, uh, these uh, uh, deferrals or, or extenuating uh, moments, uh, it's going very well. Uh, the work is going well. The flight tests are going incredibly well. Um, we've had almost 400 ferry flights, um, all of them uh, without a hitch. Uh, so it's all going well. There is a mountain of documentation that has to be completed. Sometimes the documentation work is confused with what what is referred to as a software glitch. We haven't really had software. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Glitches in the performance of our airplane at all, not in our test flights or otherwise. So we're going to complete the documentation. There is no doubt COVID and the virtual work that has to now get done between our folks and the uh, FAA that's taken a little bit of a toll on this process as well. But I remain confident and constructive about the whole thing. And if, if I could put a bigger context on it, as you know, the max for us was a supply issue, um, of course, in the first quarter because we paused our production, et cetera. But there was a market, a significant market. That is now sort of transitioned to a demand issue. So, yes, we have our 450 airplanes that are ready to be shipped. But we are working with all of our customers to defer and to move deliveries, et cetera. We're confident we can do it. It's a priority for us. But we've moved from a bit of a supply uh, uh, issue to now what is a demand issue. 
and uh, we'll work our way through it. We'll work our way through it steadily, but that's that's the big picture. Dave, one last question, and it has to do with uh, COVID-19 and the impact not only for your company, but really all of the industrial manufacturers, really all companies around the country and around the world as they start to open up again and get back to work. How slow will you expect this process to be? Because clearly you're not going to have people reporting to shifts in the same fashion. There are safety protocols that have been put in place. How slow do you expect this ramp up uh, in not just production, but getting back to work to be? Well, I'll describe it a couple of ways. Uh, First, um, we are opening factories as we speak. We are getting back to work. Of course, our big locations are in the Puget Sound and now in South Carolina. Um, Our supply chains, believe it or not, are in a little better shape than they were three weeks ago. And so if we can rely on the supply chains um, and now with our reduced production rates, we do think we can steadily improve it will cost us in, the, uh, in terms of productivity uh, because of the circumstances you're describing. We've engineered the work differently. We do have, we do have uh, uh, different shifts coming in at different times. So there will be productivity penalties associated with that probably for a quarter or two. And then I think we can achieve the kind of stability and maybe even better stability than we had pre-virus uh, simply because of the reduced rates. So I think that's the way, at least for Boeing, it's likely to unfold over the next couple of quarters. Um, We're focused first and foremost on the safety of our people. Um, We've taken every precaution we can think of. We get data every day. If we see any trends that work against us, we will not not be afraid to take the right actions and suspend again. Uh, But at any rate, we're we're, we're in a decent place. And like I, I said at the beginning, Um, I'm feeling a bit of a thaw, and I'm hoping it's a thaw, and uh, we're going to continue to work towards reopening. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun joining us remotely. Uh, Guys, just within a couple of hours of the company uh, reporting its first quarter results. Dave, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, Carl, I'll send it back to you. Busy morning. I know you guys have a lot of other big guests and a lot of news coming out. Uh, It is a busy news day, Phil. Thanks, as always, our Phil LeBeau uh, for bringing us uh, Dave Calhoun of Boeing. Uh, Jim, I mean, the the thought is beginning is the line that's made the wires. And it does seem like the market's starting to get its its head around the idea that the recovery maybe in traffic is two to three years. And as Dave said, uh, maybe three to five years on production. Well, there are obviously demand issues. But I think that two weeks ago we would have said, is Boeing going to file? How's Boeing going to be able to raise money? Is Boeing uh, going to be a uh, ward of the state? And now we're just thinking how much are they going to borrow and what's the rate? And uh, they may not need any sort of uh, I'll give any sort of warrants or stock. The company, you know, David, you may think that that's, that's too Pollyannish, but I think that the, the credit markets are so thawed that Boeing's just going to be able to get through this. Yeah, I mean, he would not give us any specifics. And we asked the, the question, as he acknowledged, a couple of different ways, a couple of different times in terms of what their plans are, Jim. Uh, there are expectations, of course, they are going to come with a large bond offering. I think we can probably expect that will be the case. What will be interesting, and you pointed this out, I think you just tweeted it also, Jim, is that maybe they don't in any way come to the government because they don't want to give up equity in some fashion. Yeah, I think it's for real. I think that that's why the stock's really moving up. Uh, but there's so much happening, uh, and David, I got to—we got to switch the transitions here. Are happening way too quickly. One of the uh, stocks that's uh, down in the after hours, as opposed to Boeing being up, is uh, Advanced Micro Devices (AMD), and I'm not sure that that's right. It's been long several times when this has happened. So let's go right to the doctor, Dr. Lisa Sue. She joins us now in another exclusive uh, interview. Lisa, it's great to see you, and uh, want to get things straight right from the beginning. I've got four pieces of research. Tell us about you lowered expectations, you lowered your number, you lowered your number. That's just not true. You maintain your number. And I think we've got to clear, clarify the record right now because that's why the stock's getting hurt. Am I right? Well, good morning, Jim. It's great to be here with uh, you guys this morning. I appreciate the time. Uh, look, we're very pleased uh, with our performance this quarter. You know, there, there's no question that it's an unprecedented time and there are no rules for this. Um, but that being the case, we saw uh, 40% growth year over year, you know, five points of margin expansion. Uh, when we look forward, we see uh, 25% growth in you know market that um, does have, you know, some uncertainties. But what we have is some strong product cycles, and we're excited about those product cycles. And so uh, we feel good about our performance. Um, what do you uh, have to say, for instance, about you that there's some softness from COVID-19? 
in some in, in China. But in general, you've got a both a good story for both work at home and also play at home. Both sides are working in your favor. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say in this um, in this world that we're living in, there are a couple of secular trends that are are positive um, for computing. Um, you know, work from home is positive. Uh, we saw a significant growth in uh, notebooks. You know, a lot of people are refreshing um, their notebooks either for uh, use at home or for you know use in schooling. And so um, that's a nice secular trend. Um, you know, consoles, gaming, um, another you know important trend for us. Um, the uh, Microsoft and Sony console launches later this year are two of the most anticipated launches. And from everything that we see, those are on track and, and we're very uh, excited about those. So, you know, and, and I should also mention the data center, um, Jim. You know, we talk a lot about the trends and the fact that we're all doing video conferencing and we're all doing uh, this work from home. It requires a lot more you know, cloud computing. And uh, we've seen some nice trends there as well. So. Um, overall, I think there are some pockets of softness, and the pockets of softness uh, were around, you know, in the first quarter, we saw a little bit of softness in China as they were shut down. Uh, that's now, you know, come back a bit here in April. But overall, um, I would say all things considered, we're, we're very, you know, fortunate that we're in markets where, you know, people need uh, more computing. So that's uh, that's really our focus. I'm glad you mentioned the cloud, Lisa, because there are very few things right now in the world that are accelerating. Almost everything's either slowing down or just stopped. It seems as if this is a moment where cloud demand is far greater and digitization far more ahead. It's kind of like everything's being rushed by this, uh, uh, by the downturn. And that we became digitized almost overnight where we thought we already were. Speak to how strong the growth is in cloud. It, it, it is truly amazing, Jim, if you think about it. I mean, we, we basically, you know, turned, um, you know, the, the world uh, to working from home in, you know, sort of an instant. And um, that's had a lot of ramifications on the infrastructure. And, you know, people need more infrastructure, you know, whether it's broadband infrastructure to get connectivity to the home or it's cloud infrastructure to support um, all of this uh, computing that we're doing remotely. So uh, it has been, um, you know, significant uh acceleration of cloud deployments that we've seen in the first quarter. We see that continuing um, as we go into the second quarter and beyond. And, you know, overall, I think it also says a little bit about, you know, how important the infrastructure is. So, you know, beyond what happens over the next quarter or two, uh, we're all going to have a new expectation for what our infrastructure looks like and what our, you know, experience looks like. And we want the flexibility of, you know, certainly we want to return to the office and see our friends and see our colleagues, but we want the flexibility to always have at our fingertips um, the computing that we need. And, and that's, by the way, that's what we've always thought. We've always thought high performance computing uh, would enable that. And so to see the build out in the cloud, to see uh, people upgrading their you know, home infrastructures, um, I think that's that's the wave of the future. Lisa, you talk about being in all the right categories, and that makes sense. But as we see life sciences becoming uh, pretty much without a doubt a larger and larger part of the economy, uh, will there be efforts to deepen your exposure to those categories and markets over time? You know, I, Carl, I really um, you know, appreciate that question. I, I think this is such an important moment. Um, if you look at what healthcare professionals are doing, either those on the front lines or uh, those researchers who are you know, helping us look for therapeutic vaccines. Um, we are uh, really proud to power some of that equipment, and it, it is absolutely a focus for us uh, to do everything we can. So, you know, a lot of um, large supercomputers are actually being used to accelerate the research uh, that is uh, being done um, in, in terms of the, the search for you know, therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, you know, we're very pleased to participate in the White House um, High Performance Computing Consortium. Uh, we're also uh, making um, you know, significant donations to uh, universities uh, to forward that research. Um, I think it's an opportunity. I mean, it's an opportunity for us to modernize uh, healthcare, and um, I'm very excited about that. And I think, again, that's another uh, secular trend that needs computing and can utilize um, you know, all of the capabilities that we have. So um, I do think it's, it's an area that, uh, you know, that we will um, spend a lot more time on going forward. Lisa, it's David Faber. Um, coming back to AMD as a company and you, as, of course, as its leader, how are you approaching the going back to work uh, that we all are awaiting and hopefully will be coming fairly soon for, for some companies in some states? 
Uh, what are you doing in terms of changing uh, workspaces, if anything, or thinking about how people are going to work differently in this post-COVID environment? Yeah, so David, uh, great question. I think that's on all of our minds uh, today. Um, I think you know our strategy is going to be um, you know conservative in how we approach it. So I think we're all thinking that this is going to be a, a very phased approach. Um, it's you know health and safety of our employees first, and um, you know the fact is we have a strong infrastructure, so you know we can be very productive with our you know engineering and um, sales activities in a work from home mode. But yeah, we're going to take this you know slowly in a phased approach and um, ensure that um, you know we bring back a fraction of our employees when uh, the local regulations um, allow. But I, I will say I'm I'm really proud of the productivity that we've seen. Um, you know, overall, again, you're transitioning, you know, whatever, 12,000 plus people um, in a very short amount of time. And um, like many companies, uh, we've been able to adapt on the fly. And, um, you know, we're very uh, fortunate to have that capability. Lisa, I want to just drill down again on something that may be a little more pedestrian, but has to do with the stock. Uh, You bucked the trend and you guided for a full year. Uh, You guided for 25 percent growth in the face of a pandemic. Other companies, including companies in your industry, pulled their forecasts. And the reason why they did that was because they knew it would be down. You, I think, are being penalized for a forecast that is up 25 percent. Isn't it true that because of the strength in gaming, because of the strength in cloud, because of the strength in notebooks, you were able to give a forecast when every other company in your segment pulled its forecast? Yeah. So, uh, Jim, I heard you and David talking about this uh, uh, comment actually yesterday. Um, on your morning show. So look, we we decided um, to give some guidance for full year. Um, so we guided to 25% with a wider, wider range than we normally guide. So 25% plus or minus 5%. And the reason was because we do think the story is a little bit different. Um, yes, there are uncertainties in the market. Yes, we're all watching, you know, the macro and, and how people, you know, how that reacts. But we have some a very strong product growth um, drivers in the second half of the year, and we wanted to make sure that we were we were clear on um, how those played out. So um, notebooks, we think, are are going to be very good for us. We have a strong product cycle. We're just starting the rollout of um, some new notebooks, and uh, you know they are uh, very much in high demand. Um, consoles and gaming, we think, are going to be a great growth driver. Again, lots of anticipation. Um, you know, the fact is. Um, those cycles are are big, especially um, in the first few years. And we think the second half of this year is going to be very strong. And then I mentioned cloud. I think cloud is another growth driver for us as we see new platforms coming on board. So um, we're excited about, you know, a 25 percent growth year. Um, there are some uncertainties, you know, on the PC side with consumer demand and we'll watch those. Um, but, yes, we decided uh, to give uh, full year guidance mainly to make sure that people understood there are some things in the product cycles that we see uh, good visibility to. And then there's some areas where we'll have to see how things play out. And overall, that comes out to a 25% growth year for us, plus or minus, and and we're happy with that. Last question. There were some on the call, and some analysts I spoke to after, who said this is a situation where AMD is starting to seed uh, growth uh, back, seed share back to a competitor. I came back and said, no, they just won the Lawrence Livermore contract. They're obviously the epic sales are going to be better in Q2. Uh, do you have any any feel that that the analysts who are saying that, well, this was really the high uh, high water mark in terms of share for AMD, that that's that's a true narrative? Yeah, Jim, I, I, I would say I, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I would say that, look, you have to take a step back from. Um, you know, quarterly dynamics and just take a look at the big picture and and what we see as growth drivers. I think, you know, in any environment, 20 plus percent growth is um, is a great year. I think in this environment, especially, um, you know, we believe that, you know, the growth story is a differentiated story. And, um, you know, when I look going forward, you know, I, I still, you know, every time I talk to you, I say we're in the early innings, but Jim, we're still in the early innings. I mean, there's a lot of product cycle to go. We're very excited about um, the large supercomputing wins with uh, Lawrence Livermore National Labs, as well as Oak Ridge National Labs. Um, those are going to be really exciting projects for us. Uh, we have you know, a lot of exciting projects on the cloud and, and with gaming. So you know, overall, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a, um, it's a challenging environment to predict. Um, but there are some things that we know in terms of our product cycles. And um, you know, we're going to 
do the best we can in the environment. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on. Uh, another great quarter. I think the stock is quite wrong. I think Lisa Sue is quite right. And it's always great to see you. Very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great being with you this morning. Okay. Carl? All right, Jim. Uh, we're going to get the opening bell here in a moment. At the big board, it's uh, Robert Glorioso, the NYSE Chief Building Engineering Operations. And at the NASDAQ, it's a shot of the tower uh, in Times Square. Jim, uh, so much to get to. We really haven't touched on advanced Q1 GDP down 4.8. We were looking for down 4. Uh, that's the worst number since the crisis. Consumption down 7.6 is the worst since the early 80s. And you couple that, Jim, with some of the swipe uh, metrics out of MasterCard today. I mean, the consumer uh, basically left in the last five weeks, uh, anywhere down 20 to 30 percent, according to MasterCard. Yeah, these are depression numbers, uh, but I think that they also may be, uh, let's say, the beginning of trough. I'm not going to say that it's the trough, because when we listen to GE later on, they're going to say, listen, Q2 could be worse. Boeing is certainly not saying that we've seen a trough. But look, I want to balance that against what we're hearing medically, because this is a member. This is a bios uh, bio panic. It is not a financial panic. And if you have uh, people who start opening up their states and people say, you know what, I think there's a little less risk that I'm going to die. And I think you have to use that term. Uh, then what we're going to see is maybe maybe June is going to be uh, uh, the beginning. Of, uh, of when we start seeing some better numbers. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm more sanguine than I was because, because of Gilead, not because of what I've heard uh, necessarily from companies, but AMD was good. I think we're here from Starbucks. I didn't think it was bad. And by the way, Alphabet is what's coloring the, the market, Google. And that was actually very good because they saw some green shoots at the end of March that continued to April. So not everything is bad. There are some companies that are doing quite well, AMD. And then Alphabet, I think, is the uh, non-Gilead color of today. Yeah, Jim, I think you're referring to the quote from Ruth Porat, very early signs of recovery in search. I mean, she did sort of surround that quote with a number of things that said, we're not so sure. We'll have to wait and see. But certainly that is being 100 times. Yeah, that is it's being seized on, though, uh, as a positive, as you might imagine. And listen, they search fell off dramatically, of course, in those last two weeks of March, as we know. But revenue still up 13 percent. The company is slowing uh, its hiring. By the way, the numbers at Google are just always astounding, particularly for those of us, I think, who remember the company when it first began, when it first began its life as a public company. Just going through these numbers is incredible with 117 billion in cash, (laughs) 11.5 billion in operating cash flow. Although free cash flow conversion is not so great at $5.4 billion. $4 billion in ads for YouTube uh, in the quarter. By the way, tax rate, 11.9%. U.S. government could use some more revenue, guys. 11.9% tax rate, adjusted tax rate there uh, for uh, Alphabet. But importantly, the slowing of hiring, I think, is also something that many are, are focused on, Jim. The company was hiring more than 20% of its workforce each year. They were actually on pace to hire as more than 20% of their existing workforce this year. Just to give you some numbers, they did still hire 4,149 people for that first quarter, but they are now going to decelerate that. They also are decelerating their spending on global offices and buildings, and that is also making people, at least who are positive to begin with, more positive when they look at a company that's trading or a stock that's trading at about 11 times forward EBITDA. Oh, you're so right, David. It, it, it was kind of funny because the things that people kept seizing on was, was maybe green shoot and efficiency, which was the word. That was code for we're not going to spend like drunken sailors anymore. People love that. So it was uh, possible green shoots, which was then taken back, and uh, maybe not spending so much crazily, which they use, say, listen, we're more efficient. So you're right. Uh, something to hang your hat on or two hats. So anyway, let's talk about yeah. a, a situation that people were initially were not as sanguine about, uh, which was the quarter from Starbucks. And we've got CEO. What a show this morning. CEO Kevin Johnson joins us. Kevin, I don't know. I'm, I could take one of two ways. I could say bad numbers or I could say, look out. You're about to open up around the country and there's going to be lines around the block. My biggest worry is how are you going to handle the lines both safely and in terms of time. And I'm taking the latter, the optimistic approach, as you know, I like to take with Starbucks. Well, Jim, you know, certainly, uh, you know, we have been on a journey and uh, this journey, you know, you think about it, we're in week 15 now since we started working on COVID-19 in China. 
And uh, we're now seven weeks behind that in the U.S. We're in week eight here in the U.S. And we've learned some things about how this, this plays out. There's a phase you go through that we call mitigate and contain. And that's the phase where uh, governments instruct people to shelter at home, businesses shut down, and you know, really everything stops while we flatten the curve and stop the spread of COVID. Now, we went through that in China for about three weeks. We've gone through that now in the U.S. for about six weeks. And as we're seeing uh, the virus flatten uh, and the spread of the virus flatten, we're now entering a new phase, a phase that really is described as monitor and adapt. Now, we started that in China. And uh, in monitor and adapt, we reopen stores. We do it in a safe way. And we slowly turn up the dial as we get uh, customers back into more normal patterns. And so starting next week here in the U.S., we are going to open a significant number of Starbucks stores. We, uh, by early June, plan to have over 90% of our stores opened in the U.S. And so we are beginning the monitor and adapt phase, which now is the path to recovery. Now, don't be confused. It's going to take some time for a vaccine or the appropriate treatments to be available for COVID-19. So we're going to be in the monitor and adapt phase while that happens. But by monitoring the number of COVID cases, by adapting the, the different uh, customer experiences we create in our stores, we're going to be able to open and begin that on-ramp to recovery in the U.S., which is a significant milestone. All right. Speaking of on-ramp, you talked on the call about entryway handoff, something that I've been desperate for at Starbucks. Can you make this work? Contactless entryway handoff to me means that you have an acceleration of same-store sales like we would definitely not expect. Well, as we open next week, you know, we're going to open. We've had drive-thrus open only, only drive-thrus open. So we've had, you know, roughly 50% of our stores closed, you know, over a several-week period. So as we open, we're going to open uh, in a safe way with drive-through, with mobile order for pickup. And in this pickup, we have a contactless handoff. It's at the entryway. Uh, and in, in other cases, we've got mobile order for drive-through. We're going to enable mobile order for curbside pickup. Uh, and uh, in some cases where, where it's safe in certain cities or communities, we might even have to go. Um, and, and we're going to begin there. But one thing we do know is what customers want right now, what consumers are looking for are experiences that are safe, familiar, and convenient. Look, people have been sheltering at home for six weeks, and they want to get out and do something. But they also want to be safe. They want to know that whatever they're going to go do is not going to contribute to the further spread of the virus, and they don't want to get sick. So they want something that's safe. So they want to go someplace that's trusted, someplace that's familiar, and someplace that's convenient. And that is exactly what we are enabling, an experience that is oriented towards a safe, familiar, convenient experience for our customers. And as we do that, we know that they will show up. I got this idea. Instead of talking about the, uh, the virus, infection, danger, nitro cold brew. Uh, isn't this maybe the hottest, well, coldest, hottest drink that you've had in years? Well, you know, it is. If you look at what uh, what's happened over the last two or three years, this whole uh, balance of, of uh, beverage mix has shifted from primarily hot beverages to a mix of cold and hot, specifically on our coffee and, and espresso platforms. So cold brew and nitro cold brew, you know, now are a significant driver of sales. And this just goes back to what we know how to do well, which is let's create a great experience in our stores. Let's innovate on beverage. And then let's extend that relationship to a digital customer relationship. And so cold brew, nitro cold brew, the cold foams that we're introducing, all of those things are driving a significant uh, amount of interest and connection with our customers, even in the period where we just had drive throughs open over this last month. So we, we feel very good about our beverage platform. We feel very good about the new breakfast uh, sandwiches and wraps that we introduced. And, uh, and we feel very good about the plans we have to reopen Starbucks over the next 30 days. That's a, yeah, that early June comment, Kevin, uh, is getting a lot of attention uh, even as we speak. Um, we love to talk about the percentage of stores that are open, but what does traffic look like in this new world where capacity is limited? Maybe you, you do more curbside. It's more drive-in. What should we get used to in, in the way of uh, traffic, which we, in the, even in the old world, we're trying to figure out ways uh, to get uh, big percentage gains? Well, here, here's one thing I think that, uh, 
that, that you should be aware of and, and something that we just kind of shared broadly is pre-COVID in the United States, 80% of our customer occasions were for takeaway, were for to go. So these were customers that were either ordering in our stores or mobile ordering and picking up their beverage and their food and, and then taking it away to go consume it somewhere outside of, of, of our stores. And so we have the throughput, the capacity to meet, to meet that demand. We had it before, we have it today. All we've done is just sort of modified the way that they order through mobile ordering and, and the pickup to really drive that. And uh, what we found when we opened the drive-throughs, you know, people find the channel where they could get access to Starbucks. You know, we had lines around the around the block in many of our drive-throughs, and even our drive-throughs as they open, you know, were performing. Uh, some of those drive-throughs were comping positive, in fact. And so, uh, you know, I say, so I think the, the first thing we're trying to do is make sure customer our customers know that we are reopening Starbucks. We are doing it in a safe and responsible manner. And we're there to deliver, you know, a, a little bit of uplift, uh, uplifting experience uh, for their for their day to come get your beverage, come get your cold brew, come get your nitro cold brew. And uh, and we're here to serve you. And uh, and we look forward to that. And frankly, next week, a significant number of those stores across the country are going to reel. Right. Uh, Kevin, it's David. Yeah, I think, as you said on the call, 90 percent, approximately 90 percent of all company operated stores, uh, U.S. Starbucks uh, stores will reopen by early June. You also, though, talk about this current phase of one that you're calling monitor and adapt. Um, And you talked about your monitoring capability on your conference call. What actually is involved in that? What are you monitoring? What are you watching to help predict how you need to adapt? Yeah, well, David, these are things that we learned in China. You know, in China, every day we get visibility to uh, if there are new COVID cases by city in China. And uh, the data that we get reports even were those cases imported or community spread. And that's information that government health officials and businesses all look at. So when we see that, and it, it, it gives us a, a sense of is there a potential uh, spread of the virus in a certain city, and if, if there is, what what can we do to be responsible and making sure we're dialing back and, and implementing extra safety protocols? But for the most part in China, that data just gives us confidence that we slowly turn the dial up. In fact, by turning the dial up, we start to now expand the number of services that we provide to customers. So for example, in the U.S., we now get daily feeds by county of the number of COVID cases. And and this is uh, combined with uh, some of the technology that our artificial intelligence team has done. Uh, The Deep Brew team has come up with ways to get also uh, customer sentiment as well as our partner sentiment combined with the COVID data intersected with the store locations. And it starts to give us a digital picture by store of what's happening in that community. That data is now allowing us to figure out the appropriate protocols to implement in that store. And so, you know, next week you're going to see stores open that have mobile order for pickups. Some will have curbside, some will have the contactless delivery, and some stores may, might even be open for to-go, where you can come in and order and take your food and beverage and leave. As we monitor this data, though, we're going to start to see communities where we can now turn the dial up and offer limited seating in the stores. Now, that's going to happen probably a few weeks down the road as we keep monitoring in certain stores, not, you know, not some big switch across the country, but in a targeted way. And by offering limited seating, we can now ensure social distancing and a safe, familiar experience uh, of of community in our stores. And so that's what the data is helping us do. It's helping us really adapt uh, the formats and the protocols we offer in our stores and do it in a way that meets the needs and meets the the, the aspirations of our customers. Kevin, there was a moment on the conference call where it talked about how your numbers weren't as good in China as uh, Yum China. And then you talked about how, well, you're in more tourist areas. There are more in cities. It made me think that your saturation in China is far less than I thought, that I realized that maybe you are, you, you've hit the travel areas. But is it possible that you could do double or maybe even triple the number of Starbucks based on what we heard last night of Yum China versus you? Well, look, I, here's my belief. You know, pre-COVID, we were, we were opening uh, a net new 600 stores per year in China. In fact, that's a new store on average every 12 hours. You know, we just announced last night we've, we've throttled back just for this year to from 600 new stores to 500 new stores. But as we go into fiscal 21, we're going to ramp it back up to 600 new stores. So we can open a new store in China uh, on average every 12 hours. And Jim, we could do that for you know at least the next decade or two. There is uh, immense 
immense addressable market for us to go capture in China. Think of it. It is a tea drinking culture that we are introducing premium coffee to. And as we've done that over the last 20 years, we're now over 4,300 stores. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a phenomenal uh, long-term opportunity for growth in China. And that's why we're, that's why we're so bullish on it. And, uh, and that's why we continue to invest in it. In fact, we just announced a $130 million capital investment to build a, a coffee innovation park. It's, a, it's another one of the roasting plants that we have. Uh, will be built in China, and it will be uh, it completely green. It is, a, it is an environmentally, environmentally sustainable roasting plant in China. It's one, of, it's one of the global roasting plants that we will now operate. And so we're, we're very bullish on China for the long term. All right. Thank you so much, Kevin. Again, a stock that looks down that was wrong, but that's okay. Market gets things wrong. Always good to see you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, guys. All right. Let's go to uh, uh, one where the stock's flying. Let's go to Spotify CEO Daniel Eck. What a great joy to have him on. Joins us post-earnings. Daniel, it is great to have you on, and you've got a story about the way people consume Spotify that I think surprised people. I think there were people who said, you know what, this is a commuting story. It looks like it's more of an at-home story. Tell us about the new narrative of Spotify. Well, you know, it's not so much as a new narrative as something we've been investing in for the past five years. Uh, It's something part of our ubiquity strategy. So we have over 300 device partnerships in home, in car, in mobile uh, with the likes of Sonos, PlayStation, Xbox, smart speakers, but also, of course, cars as well. So what's happening now as people are staying home, uh, listening is shifted to in-home instead of just being uh, on mobile or in car. And uh, we're very, very pleased with the progress, uh, 130 million subs and 286 million monthly active users. You, uh, uh, I think some people would be concerned that advertising was down, but when I look at the mosaic of your earnings now, Advertising is really not a factor. And what we should be looking at, I believe, is uh, growth in subscriptions. Yeah, you're, you're right, Jim. Um, advertising is about 10% of our business. Uh, so it's a very small part of our overall business. And we're very much a subscription business. And uh, that's the primary driver, I think, of our business, certainly in the near to midterm. When you were with us last, you were introducing the concept of a podcast. I think a lot of people were skeptical. They weren't sure about the acquisitions. I remember it was over in Brooklyn. Uh, Podcast looks like it's exceedingly profitable and well ahead of what we thought could happen. Yeah, it's been a great story. A year ago when I was on this show last time, um, I introduced the shift in our strategy from music to audio. At that time, uh, we were a very small player in audio, uh, but growing fast. Now we're the number one player in more than 20 markets around the world uh, and quickly catching up in the markets where we're not number one. And of course, we have our content which has grown as well from about a quarter million podcasters now to over a million this quarter. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm just waiting for when you're going to join us, Jim, as well as a podcaster. <laughs> Maybe soon. Uh, well, and, and me too, I'm sure, Daniel. It's David Faber. I know you meant me as of well. Course. Of course. Thank <laughs> you. We'd, we'd, we'd be happy to have both of you as podcasters. Maybe competing podcasters uh, even. Thank you. <laughs> no, we're always a team. We're always a team. Uh, Daniel, right. um, I did want to ask about about gross margins because you got a number of, of questions on the call about that. You know, in terms of the gross margin improvement, whether it's sustainable, how podcasts are playing into that in terms of money you've you've paid, but perhaps uh, expenses that aren't yet realized. Can you explain and tell our viewers what your thoughts are in terms of gross margins, whether we can draw a lot from the current quarter? Yeah, um, again, uh, we are at the upper end of our forecast range in terms of uh, gross margin, Um, saw lower cost in distribution, um, saw healthier growth in streaming uh, on the subscription side as well. Uh, That's a story that we think will play out very nicely uh, over the coming quarters as well. So don't see uh, much of a reason other than reiterating our guidance on gross margin. How are you approaching global expansion? I know you may have delayed your uh, uh, Russia for a bit. Uh, There are a number of other countries you're planning on rolling out. Uh, Has that been uh, delayed as a result, of course, of the virus around the globe? 
Well, we're always taking decisions uh, quarter by quarter as realities changes around the world. Uh, the strategy that we're taking as it relates to new market launches is we rather want to make it right. So to the extent um, that, uh, you know, for us, it's not just about turning on a switch. We want to be locally relevant. We want to have editors in place. We want to make sure we have a great uh, progress of new music coming onto the platform that people can come and check out. And of course, new podcasts as well. So uh, we're always changing quarter by quarter the mix of what we're doing but um again i would i would just come back to the user growth uh and the increasing user growth uh, that we're seeing so we're feeling pretty good about it compared to q1 2019 we have actually increased our growth rates uh, in all four of our uh, territories so we're very pleased about that right. and we'll keep on making those adjustments uh, and to those investors of yours who would say, listen, we love your toward growth, but we'd like to see you kind of put the brakes on a little bit, perhaps pursue more efficiency, cut costs, mm. similar in the way that they're that they're seeing Google at least give some voice to that. Uh, what do you say to those people? Well, if you're just up leveling, uh, it's the trend that we're seeing is um, linear radio is moving into on demand. We're talking about something that has billions of consumers around the world that are now moving uh, their behaviors online. Something like the COVID will likely accelerate that trend. Um, so for us, we're really just in the growth stage of trying to capture that growth. And eventually we will, of course, get to a more point of maturity where we'll focus more on profit uh, over growth. But for the next uh, few years, it's going to be predominantly growth for us. Hey, Daniel, you talk about uh, listening in cars. We talk so much about the work-from-home dynamic uh, enduring well past uh, the health care crisis. What is listening in a car going to seem like or be like for, for most uh, a commuting time in general? Do you see it recovering to pre-COVID levels? I mean, it's hard, uh, obviously, speculating in uh, when things will go, will go back to normal or even what normal will be. Uh, what we've seen is a massive shift in user consumption. Uh, we've seen, obviously, no sports. Uh, uh, we've seen um, a huge focus on news. We've seen focus on uh, health and wellness uh, to a large extent. And on the music side, there's been more focus on classical music. There's been more focus on chill music as well um, uh, in terms of just uh, everything here under the corona. I think going forward, um, I, I, I very much believe that people will come back and wanting to get back to a normalcy. So uh, when sports will come back, uh, I, I suspect that we'll see record numbers um, of people attending those. Uh, I, I know I'm, I'm one who's certainly craving more sports. So um, I, I believe <laughs> people will come back to more of a normalcy as well. And then in terms of advertising, you're not heavily exposed uh, to the ad market in general. But in terms of categories, I wonder which you think will be most resilient as we work our way through the summer. In terms of advertising, uh, I mean, again, we're, we're seeing on, on our podcasting side, uh, again, it being pretty resilient. I, I think uh, people will move towards a better ROI and better measurability. So digital will still be strong. And I think the, the real key theme for investors to look at is, is uh, really the trend lines that we've been seeing, I believe, will be accelerated. So physical to digital uh, and linear to on-demand are the big trend lights that will be accelerated and more measurability, of course, on the ad side uh, will also be the trend line that will be accelerating. You know, Daniel, there is a uh, obviously a tremendous number of job loss worldwide. And I have to think that in terms of competition, you have a good model uh, because 60 percent of your uh, of your users start free uh, versus everyone else where they insist that you pay from the get go. Yeah, uh, you're right, Jim. Uh, we have a freemium model. So you start out being free on our platform and eventually people move into um, becoming paid mo paid users, more than 60% of them, just like you mentioned. And this is uh, a great thing in an uncertain economic environment like this one, because you can easily just, if you're feeling economic pain, uh, you can go back down to the free service and then uh, go back up to the premium service uh, when you have the means to do so. And we think that that's going to be a very strong competitive driver uh, in an uncertain environment. A lot of people don't realize that I'm a chill guy. Uh, I heard what you said about people listening to chill music. But it is true. Uh, there is a mindfulness wave 
that is somehow being captured by the people who work at home. Are you able to detect that from artificial intelligence? Because that's not exactly what I thought would happen during this period. Yeah, you're very much right, Jim. Um, our personalization um, is discovering changes in consumer behavior almost overnight. And we are seeing a lot of people turning into wellness and health. Want um, to de-stress, want to focus on health. Um, those are strong drivers, both in podcasts. Um, and certainly when it comes to podcast creators, those that are doing the best are the ones that are tuning into those trends, either on news or focusing on wellness and health. And similarly on music, um, that's also been a big driver of our uh, engagement these past few weeks. Yeah, speaking of engagement then, Daniel, you mentioned Jim obviously talked about free. What are you seeing in terms of free trials right now? Overall, uh, healthy growth across the board. Uh, MEU growth looking very nicely. Lapsed users, I previously uh, Users that have left us are now coming back. We're very encouraged by this. Uh, we're also seeing, of course, uh, strong subscriber growth by hitting 130 million subscribers in the quarter. So, so far, so good. Um, you've talked in the past about India being a big opportunity. I haven't necessarily seen anything mentioned recently. Is that still the case or are you pulling back there in any way? Definitely not pulling back. Uh, India is still a massive long-term opportunity. Um, it's, it's more like a decade-long opportunity. We're talking about a population of over 1 billion people uh, of varying uh, economic demographics. Uh, but obviously, that growth will happen in India, and more and more people will have more economic means. Um, and as part of that, the overall market will grow and the opportunity will grow. We're there. We just, in the quarter, signed a bunch of new licensing deals, including Warner Music that brings their repertoire to India and local music uh, providers uh, like Sarigama and others as well. So we're seeing more catalog, more content on the service, which will translate to more engagement. Uh, so we're pretty happy about India. Daniel, how about kids? It seems like you're making major effort there. It might be working. Yeah, um, Spotify, again, we started very much as a millennial brand um, and uh, millennials used to be uh, people in the 20s, uh, but more and more millennials are also growing into their 30s and having children um, by the, by, as, as well. And, and we're seeing those kids are now asking for content and their parents are asking for safe ways to access uh, Spotify. So we launched a kid's product. Uh, we've expanded the number of territories that that kid's product is in. And it's just fascinating to see how kids are engaging with Spotify, uh, choosing their avatars. It's obviously an ad-free environment. Uh, it's a very safe, curated environment. Uh, and we're seeing lots and lots of fun explorations by kids, both on storytelling, but also, of course, in music. You can imagine Trolls being uh, a big soundtrack for us right now. I know we're always worried that you're running out of expansion. We talked about Russia, but uh, South Korea could be good for you. Absolutely. South Korea is a massive music market. Uh, obviously, you have uh, BTS and, and K-pop uh, being a big global phenomenon. So we're very excited to launch there as well. That's a big opportunity for us. Uh, but we shouldn't forget about Africa either. Uh, Africa is the continent for the next decade for sure. Uh, that's going to be a big opportunity as well when you think about long-term opportunities for Spotify. Uh, this is really a billions of user opportunity that we're going after. Um, and we're only in the beginning of that growth. All right. Daniel Eck, chairman, CEO and co-founder of Spotify, a stock that is up 18 points. Thank you so much for coming on Squawk on the Street. Thank you guys so much for having me. Carl. Thanks, Daniel. All right, Jim, we've uh, processed a lot in the last uh, 60 minutes. You're going to stick around with us uh, a little extra time today. But uh, Dow up 450 is about session highs. As the remdesivir headlines, uh, Jim, sort of drowned out uh, the GDP number. You know, I think that, remember, the, the controversy with remdesivir was that you had that terrific study that Adam Feuerstein broke in STAT, which said at University of Chicago that it was working. Uh, and then you immediately had China changing the narrative, saying, listen, the reason why we stopped wasn't because we couldn't find patients. It was because it was killing people. And that really took all the air out of Gilead. Now, I think people have to understand Gilead is not going to has no plans to make any money off this. But what it does do, and I think David's right, I want to temper my view, 
I, I use the term Tamiflu. What I, I what I, I should have said is uh, it's an intravenous way that if you start early enough, makes it so that the doctors seem to have a new protocol or at least the doctors have a weapon. I think that most of the articles that we read about it are about how once you get in, they don't know what to do. Uh, if they have something, then it leads to other things in the antiviral. I think this Fuji uh, pill is going to be something that we're going to be listening to. And uh, the vaccine story, I think, has always been overhyped. It's what we absolutely need. But it's so hard to inject a healthy person with something that could kill them that the government and no government wants that to happen. I hear China's ahead. But, David, as you know, an antiviral is truly something that would make it so uh, you might want to go out and think, you know what, it's not a death sentence to go out. And that does matter, David. Without a doubt, there is no doubt that that will be very important in terms of the ability for people to actually go about uh, leading their lives again, which we all want to do as quickly as possible. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.